Well, a small change in wording can make a big difference in our understanding. For example, if I were to walk up to you while you were looking at your phone and I said, hey, who do you follow? You would probably start thinking of the people you follow on social media or maybe podcasts you subscribe to or news programs or radio programs that you consistently watch or listen to or any number of people that you follow. But if instead you're sitting in church like you are right now and I say, who are you a disciple of? Who immediately comes to mind? Jesus, of course, right? But following someone and being a disciple of someone, in one sense, can be the same thing. Right? So we usually use the word disciple only in a Christian context. Right? And that's not bad. But what that means is we don't realize how many people we are being discipled by or how much discipleship is going on in our lives because we don't use that word for it. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's biblical that we would be following many people. Right? We should be following Jesus first of all, of course. Right? But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So there's nothing wrong with following Paul as long as you're following Paul because Paul's following Jesus and Paul is showing you how to follow Jesus. Or he says in Philippians 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So follow Paul. Even follow other people who are also living faithful Christian lives. That's good. That's healthy. That's biblical. This is not a, to say that you're being discipled by more people than you realize, that's, that's not, a, not a gotcha moment. All right? this, this just We need to think about the fact that we are being discipled by all kinds of people. But here's what we need to be aware of. Two things. One, we need to be aware of who we are following. Who we are being discipled by. Again, one of the reasons, one of the, one of the negatives to only using the word disciple in sort of church terms and, and Christian terms is that we don't think about the fact that we may be being discipled by all kinds of people. We, we aren't even aware of it. So we need to know, we need to think about who we are following. And here's how you kind of figure that out, right? Who's Voice, do you give your time and attention to? Sometimes maybe even your allegiance to. Who is it that's speaking into your life consistently by your choice? In some measure, you're being discipled by that person. Again, that's not necessarily bad, but you need to be aware of it. And then here's the second thing. We need to ask ourselves, are the people we are following, are they helping us to follow Christ or are they hindering us from following Christ? The things that they're telling us, the things that they're teaching us, the priorities that they are imprinting on our lives, are those consistent with following Jesus or are they out of sync 
with following Jesus? Are they helping us to follow Jesus or are they hindering us from following Jesus? Those are things we need to be aware of and we need to think about because those other people can affect the way that we are following Jesus. And that's the real issue, right? And we're going to see this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, our sermon passage is going to focus on the second half of John 9. We looked at the first half last Sunday. So we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 26. And the heart of this passage is going to be about discipleship. It's about who we follow and whether or not we are following the right person and even whether we're following the right person in the right way. So let me read to us, uh, beginning of verse 26, and just remind you what's going on here. There was a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And instead of everybody celebrating, there was a whole lot of questioning that went on, and there was even some hard-heartedness revealed, some people who just did not want to believe that Jesus did this, or that if he did, they were convinced he had done it in a way that was... uh, Sinful and, and breaking God's law because it happened on the Sabbath. And so this man who was born blind has now been healed, as well as his family, have been subjected to all kinds of questions and interrogation, trying to sort all this out. And here's what happens beginning in verse... Uh, let's re- start reading in verse 24, actually. It says, So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And they're talking about Jesus, the man who healed him. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, 
your guilt remains. So again, there's been all this interrogation, all this questioning that's gone on. Uh, The man's family was questioned because some didn't even believe that this man actually had been blind from birth. And so they ask his parents and they verify, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. How he got healed, we don't know. You have to ask him about that. And the man bore witness, saying, he, he gave his testimony. He didn't know a lot about Jesus. He just met Jesus, and Jesus had healed him. That's all he knew. So he said, here's what I know. I was blind, but now I can see. That, that's about all I know. But that's a powerful testimony. And so these men, these religious leaders, who are questioning him, right? they have brought him in for the second round of questioning, and after he gives that testimony, they say to him in verse 26, okay, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? Evidently, what they are trying to do is they are trying to prove or demonstrate that Jesus did this in an unlawful way. Again, it happened on the Sabbath, and God had told his people, right, the Jews, to keep the Sabbath holy and to rest from their labor on the Sabbath. But there are also all these traditions and extra rules that had built up around the Sabbath about what you could and couldn't do. And so this was not the first time or the only time that Jesus uh, faced opposition because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Right? There, were, uh, there are other instances in the Gospels where um, somebody, Jesus heals somebody, and just because he healed someone on the Sabbath, they think, that's it. He can't be from God. In this instance, perhaps the fact that Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud and put it on his eyes, they might have said, well, that that counts as work. You made something. So clearly you're breaking the Sabbath. That's why it seems that they keep questioning this man about how Jesus did this. But he responds with what feels like a little bit of sarcasm in verse 27. He says, you guys have already asked me these questions. Why why do you keep asking me this over and over? You you know the kind of person that asks over and over about what somebody has done and how he did it? The kind of person who wants to be their disciple. You want to learn from him. You want to follow him. So he says, do you want to be his disciples too? Now he knows they don't. He's under no illusions that these men want to be disciples of Jesus. But he sort of throws that question in their face. Right? And says, you guys want to be his disciples? Is that why you keep asking me to tell you this story over and over? We love to hear the stories about Jesus over and over because we're his disciples. That's not why these men are asking these questions. They're trying to entrap Jesus. They're trying to prove that Jesus was doing something wrong. And their response makes very clear that The question, do you want to be his disciples too, hit a nerve with these men. Because it says in verse 28, in response to that question, they reviled him. They they spoke to him with scorn. right, And they said, you are his disciple. You, You might be following this guy, but we certainly aren't. And they say, we are disciples of Moses. And they think by saying that that they have staked out the high ground. 
Uh, Because they go on to say, we know that God has spoken to Moses. So clearly, we should all be following him. Whether or not God has spoken to this Jesus guy or where he comes from, like we don't, we don't even know. That's still up for debate. That's still what we're trying to figure out. So we're not committing to follow Jesus, who we know almost nothing about. Instead, we are followers of Moses, like all good Jews should be. They think they've got the high ground. But instead they have actually revealed that they are not standing on any ground at all. Because Jesus has already told us, back in chapter 5, these words. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because Moses wrote of me. In other words, these men who are rejecting and opposing Jesus while claiming to be disciples of Moses are not actually good disciples of Moses at all. Because a good disciple of Moses is going to recognize Jesus as the one Moses wrote about and follow him. Because Moses wrote in Genesis 3.15 that God told the serpent that one of the offspring of the woman would one day come and crush his head, the serpent's head. He also told us about how Jacob prophesied to his son Judah that from him would come kings and a kingdom that would last And that nations would come and serve him. Jesus, of course, is that king born from Judah's line, born from David's line. Moses is the one who wrote about the serpent that God made, the bronze serpent, or that Moses made, the bronze serpent that he made in the wilderness when God sent the judgment of the fiery snakes among his people for their sin. And when they looked to that serpent that God told Moses to make, they would be healed. And Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 3 that he must be lifted up like the bronze serpent so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And we could just go on. The, The prophet Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18 that God would send who would be like him, who God would speak through, and the people would need to listen to him. That was Jesus as well. All throughout Moses' writings, Moses is preparing the people for the coming of Jesus. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy, that's what all of his writings are about. And so when these men proudly stand in front of this man who's been healed by Jesus, and they say, well, you might be following Jesus, but we're following the one we know God spoke through, and that's Moses. They're actually testifying against themselves that they haven't listened carefully to Moses at all. They've completely missed the reason why Moses wrote. They thought that the main reason, evidently, they thought the main reason Moses wrote was to give them the law. But the main reason Moses wrote was to prepare them for Jesus. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that even the giving of the law was meant to prepare us for Jesus. So that we would know our sin, our need for a Savior, so that when Jesus came, we would put our trust in Him. So they think they are good disciples of Moses, but they're not. They revile this man for being a disciple of Jesus, which is what they should be. And listening to their words raises a question for us. 
Who is like Moses in your life and my life? Who's the person whose credentials are beyond reproach for you? Who's the person you don't understand why anyone could fail to listen to them and do what they say? Who are you utterly convinced speaks the truth? Because that's the person whose disciple you are. Whoever that may be. So here's what you need to ask yourself. Whoever that person is in my life, are they worthy of the position that I've given to them in my mind and heart? Have I elevated that? If it's not Jesus, have I elevated that person above Jesus? Do I trust their words more often, more consistently than I go to or trust Jesus' words? When their words, attitudes, or actions contradict those of Jesus, who do I side with? Now, in these men's case, they were misreading Moses, as we said, but misreading Moses allowed them to set up Moses in contradiction to Jesus so they could claim to be following Moses instead of following Jesus. In our case, we're not very likely to say that we're following somebody instead of following Jesus. We, we, we know better than to say that. And, and so we don't even want to let ourselves think that we're doing that. But it's possible to know you shouldn't be doing that and still be doing it in practice. And so that's why we have to examine ourselves, examine our lives. Think about who in your life you give that kind of devotion to. Who in your life... Their words for you are sacrosanct. Whatever they says, whatever they say is true. The only person who deserves that place, of course, is Jesus. Right? But it's very easy for us to let other people begin to take that place. Now, in response to what these men say, we know that God spoke through Moses, but we don't know about Jesus this man who was born blind is just, he's incredulous. He can't believe it. How could they not know? He says in verse 30, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. By that, he does not mean, you know, God doesn't listen to anybody, right? Because we're all sinners, what he means is, if Jesus is the kind of overt lawbreaker that you think he is, someone who just ignores God's law, who cares about the Sabbath, who cares what God says, God doesn't listen to that kind of person. right? That's what he means by God doesn't listen to sinners. And yet, he says, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So if somebody is seeking to honor God, then God does hear them, and God might work through them. Right? So he says, never since the world began, verse 32, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man, Jesus, whom you claim is a sinner, has just done something that nobody has ever done. People have been healed of blindness, but not people who were born blind, who've never been able to see before. 
So how do you explain Jesus being able to do that unless God did it, right? He says in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He couldn't do anything special or spectacular if it weren't for God. Certainly not something like this. I can't believe that you guys think the jury is still out on where Jesus came from or how he was able to do this. It doesn't make any sense. But these men have two problems that keep them from hearing and receiving the truth that this man is speaking. One is, they've got some bad theology in their lives. And the other is, they're proud. They've got some bad theology because they say to this man, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? It's bad theology because as we saw at the beginning of the chapter last time, and it's worth remembering this morning, that when Jesus and his disciples passed by this man who was born blind, the disciples of Jesus asked him, who sinned that this man was born blind? The man himself or his parents? In their minds, it was obvious that somebody had sinned to cause this man to be born blind. The only question was, did his parents sin, or did he somehow sin while he was in the womb? Jesus responded by saying it was neither of those. right? But this man was born blind so that God could do his work in him, show his power through him. Now it's true that blindness and cancer and all those kinds of things are in the world because of sin, right? but they're not necessarily a direct result of our personal sin. Like, you're blind or you must have done something wrong and God's punishing you that way. But that's how these men see it as well. They look at this man and they say, you must be an absolutely terrible sinner and were from the moment you were born. That's why you were born blind. And so you're not the kind of person we're even going to listen to. So they've got some bad theology that's caused them to think this man is worse than than them when he's not. And with that comes pride thinking that this man cannot have anything to teach them. Even if they were right about him being a worse sinner than they were, would that mean there was nothing that they could learn from him? No. No. Here's what we see in the Bible. Sometimes, in the Bible, even the pagans get it right, when God's people don't. Not just that they get it right, but sometimes they get it right when God's people get it wrong. Let me give you an example. Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, man of faith, trusting God's promises, seeking to follow God, Goes into a new place, tells his wife, hey, you're really beautiful. They're probably going to want to take you away from me, maybe even kill me. So let's tell them that you're my sister, and that way we'll all be safe. Which is, you know, not a great plan, obviously. He's lying, right, and not taking good care of his wife. What happens when the king of that place finds out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife and not his sister, he rebukes Abraham. He says, essentially, what were you thinking? 
What were you doing? Should Abraham listen to that man who doesn't belong to God, doesn't know God? Should he say, well, you're not a Christian, you don't know God, you don't have anything to teach me? No, the man was right. And Abraham was wrong. Sometimes people who are ungodly see things more clearly than God's people do. The question is not, who is this coming from? The question is, are they right or not? Does what they're saying line up with God's word or not? With God's character or not? So they should have listened to this man, even if he was a worse sinner than them. But their bad theology and their pride kept them from hearing him out. Kept them from hearing his testimony about Jesus. This is something we have to be aware of too. There are people in our lives, probably, that we think have nothing to teach us. And that's because we're proud, most likely. For whatever the reason may be, whatever it is we think about them that's different from us in some way that we think, well, a person like that doesn't know anything that I need to know. It's probably not true. We have to be aware of pride that keeps us from listening to the truth, even when it comes from a place we don't expect it to be coming from. Now, after this happens, it says they cast him out Probably meaning they cast him out of the temple because that's where Jesus was at the end of chapter 8. And so when they passed by this man who was born blind, he was probably sitting somewhere outside the temple. And so that's probably still where they were. And so they threw this man out. And then Jesus goes and finds him in verse 35. And he asks this man a simple question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I love that this man doesn't just say, hey, you healed me. I'll believe whatever you say. Sure, yes, I do. I don't even know what you're talking about, but okay. He doesn't do that. But he does trust Jesus enough to know whoever he's talking about is probably someone I want to believe in, but I I need to know more. So he says to him, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's come to trust Jesus He's siding with Jesus, unlike the religious leaders who are opposing him. And yet, he knows he needs a little more information before he can commit to whatever Jesus is asking him about here. So he says, well, who is the Son of Man? And as we said earlier, that title comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated on his heavenly throne, and Daniel sees one like a Son of Man come before that throne and receive from God the Father, an eternal kingdom, an everlasting dominion. Who is that? It's Jesus. He's one like a son of man in the vision because Jesus takes on human flesh and blood, right? He's the eternal son of God who becomes man. And as both son of God and son of man, God in the flesh, he receives the kingdom of God. That lasts forever. That's why when uh, he departs from his disciples after his resurrection, before he does that, he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why when he begins his ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because Jesus is the king who has the kingdom of God that will reign and last forever. He, we need to bow the knee to King Jesus. So he is the son of man that Daniel saw in that vision. And so Jesus says to him, you've seen him. It's me. I am the Son of Man. 
And so the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worships Jesus. Indicating that he's maybe even beginning to get a hint of the idea that Jesus is God. Before, he recognized Jesus as a prophet. He knows that Jesus is not a sinner, a lawbreaker. He knows that he's been sent from God. But at this point, he seems to even maybe begin to recognize that Jesus is not even just like a great prophet or a great man, but that he's the God-man because he worships him. Everything comes down to this. Right? Who do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man? Do you believe that he's the Savior? Do you believe that he's God in the flesh? Do you believe that he is the promised one? That's what makes all the difference. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. I said before that a miracle can also be a parable. And this is where I, I, I was getting that from. The miracle of healing the man who was born blind is not just about demonstrating that Jesus has the power to physically heal someone that nobody else could. That's part of what's going on, but this is only part of it. Jesus tells us that he came to make the blind see and those who see become blind. And he's not talking there about physical sight and blindness. If he was, then these religious leaders who opposed him here, he would have caused them to become physically blind. But he doesn't. Instead, what he's saying is, this man whom I healed from his physical blindness now has also been healed from his spiritual blindness because he sees me for who I am and he believes in me. And that's what I came for, for people who were blind... To have their eyes opened and to see Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. But also, he says, that those who see may become blind. What's that talking about? Well, it says in verse 40 that some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Are you talking about us? Are Are you saying that we can't see? And Jesus says to them in verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, here's their problem. They think they know. They think they see. They think they see through Jesus. He's not the real Messiah. He's a fake. He's a charlatan. We don't believe him. We don't trust him. He's operating by the power of demons. They even say at one point, We see clearly, you, this man born blind, you don't. Or back in chapter um, 7, when people were sent to arrest Jesus, and they came back and hadn't arrested him. And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. You remember what the religious leaders said to them? This crowd of people that is accursed, they believe in Jesus, but... Us qualified religious leaders and teachers, we know better, and we don't believe in him. They think they see. And Jesus says, if you would just admit that you were blind, you have no guilt. 
But because you claim to see, when in fact you are blind, that's why your guilt remains. So who we follow has consequences. Who we believe has consequences. Moses could not take away anyone's guilt. Nor could the law that God gave through Moses. Those men who claimed to be faithful followers of Moses, yet missed Jesus. Missed why Moses came. Because Moses couldn't give them what they thought he could. Remember these words from the, from the beginning of the Gospel of John? Where it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you want to know the truth, it's only ultimately found in Jesus. And when you hear a claim to truth from any other source, what do you do? You measure it against Jesus. Who he is, what he says, what he did. The truth comes through him. But not only the truth, also grace. Because the truth is, we're all born in other sin. We're all sinners. And we need the grace of God. How do we get to a place where we have no guilt instead of our guilt remaining? Not by pretending we can see. Not by pretending that we don't have any guilt. But by acknowledging that Jesus is the only one who can take that guilt away. And saying to him, like the man born blind, Lord, I believe. And then following him above all. Let's pray.